Let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time, we're conscious that we are so dependent on your word to inform us. But Lord, you have not just given us your word, you've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would use me as an instrument to speak your word so that your people would encounter your spirit and hear your instruction for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we are now back at school and back at work and back at whatever, it's that time of year, today we will also be finally going back to the book of Ephesians. And it's some time since we were there. I had to look back some way. The last sermon I preached from this book was in October last year. And nevertheless, I remain hopeful that someday we will be finished. Today we'll be looking at chapter 5, verse 20, so please could you turn there now. Now I want to start by asking you three questions. And you don't need to answer them right now, but I want you to try and keep them in your mind as we go through this passage. The first one is, do you really believe, do you really believe that God is in control of everything? Secondly, do you trust God to look after you? And thirdly, if you do believe these things, what difference does it make to the way that you live your life? Right, let's go to our passage and I'll read from verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine and witches' dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, in our last sermon in the section of Ephesians 5, we learned that the first sign of a wise, spirit-filled life is the joyous outpouring from our mouths of God's given word mixed with our own words about God's word. And that's a 10-second sermon right there. Don't you wish they were all like that? But today we will be looking at a second sign, which is an attitude of continual gratitude. As our text says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's start by, by talking about giving thanks. Well, my personal experience is that as a general rule, society has a pretty poor track record when it comes to saying thank you. Complaining and insisting on our rights, well, we're top of the class, but when it comes to the T word, we are often found to be the kid in the corner with the dunce hat. And I guess that there will be many different reasons for this position, but I suspect that some of the main reasons will be the the thing that we are reluctant to say thank you is because it makes us look a little weak and unable to cope on our own, or perhaps we are too proud because giving praise to others takes a spotlight off ourselves. Isn't that also how it is sometimes with God? We're on our own mission, and it is our own hard work and discipline and sacrifice that has brought us the success we presently enjoy. We have no time or inclination to stop and reflect on anything else so, 
Why should we thank anyone for what we alone have achieved? Isn't that right sometimes? That's wrong. The truth is that when we are in this space, we are at least 100% mistaken because factually we owe everything to God. Every talent we have, every possession we own, every good thing that we enjoy comes from the Lord. He has been so generous to us that just these things on their own, aside from the marvel of salvation, ought to be enough to move us to constant thanks and praise. But then there's that thing, salvation. Hmm. Have you heard the term orders of magnitude? Well, it's simply a mathematical method of expressing the way that numbers get bigger. One order of magnitude means that X is ten times greater in quantity than Y. Two orders would be a hundred times greater than X, and a third order of magnitude would be a thousand times greater than X, and so on. You get the idea? Or we can use this, this term today. The fact that we are saved lies many, many orders of magnitude beyond any human ability to render our gratitude. We sing a song here in church from time to time which is called The Love of God and I'm sure you'll recognize it. One of the verses goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Now, of course, as written, these words inspire us to appreciate the vastness of God's love for us. But I don't think it would be inappropriate for us to use them to go the other way and so to rewrite them like this. Could we with ink the ocean full and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write our thanks to God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll suffice the whole though stretched from sky to sky. We were sinners. We disobeyed God and we still disobey him today and so the only thing that we could possibly deserve is his punishment, which is death. Yet in an act of grace which is beyond our understanding, Jesus, the Son of God, being very God himself, came to earth as a man to take that punishment instead of us. So for those who repent of their sins and believe in him as their saviour, there is a promise, a guarantee that when they die, they will spend eternity with God in heaven. We did nothing. We can do nothing to buy or deserve that gift, and yet we can simply have it if we follow Christ as our Lord and saviour. Friends, I struggle for words to express this. I can't. It is way beyond precious. And so our Lord deserves our thanks and praise in every moment of every day of our lives since every one of those moments comes from and through him. Now there are clearly a bunch of things that we recognize as reasons to give thanks, but there are other things. So how broad should our gaze be? It says here in Scripture that we should give thanks always for all things. 
Now that provokes a question, doesn't it? Because immediately I want to ask all things. Should I give thanks for Hitler or the Twin Towers or the way that Islamic radicals are committing unspeakable atrocities in the Middle East? I can't really see how that might be appropriate. So it's most helpful that there is a qualifying statement here. It says that we must give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that the word give is key key here because I don't think anyone wanting to give something to God out of a heart of thanks would want it to be anything that he wouldn't like. What do we know about the character of God that will inform us about how he will receive our thanks? Well, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always and in every way stand apart from evil. They will never ever do evil themselves and they will never cause evil through others. They cannot because God is perfectly good through and through all the time. All of the time. There is never a single moment when God is not good and there is never even the veriest very tiniest part of him that is even slightly evil. And that's a very important thing for us to ponder on since a lot of our hope is founded on this fact. You know, if God did ever have that tiny sliver of evil hidden in him somewhere, how would we know that it would not be applied to us? that maybe we would get to the day of judgment having and believed in Jesus and, and served the Lord for our whole lives and only just hear him have a little laugh and say, Ha ha! Fooled you! Off you go to hell! Praise God that this is not even the slightest bit true, that he is always perfectly good because it means that our hope in his salvation is well founded on the most solid of rocks. It seems obvious then that if God cannot be the author of evil, then it is never appropriate to thank him for it. But this still leaves us with a problem, because we ourselves commit evil and we live in an evil world. So, when we read a commandment like this to give thanks at all times, what are we going to do when the times are evil? We cannot ignore it. In fact, we ought to expose it and fight it after all. So, what can we do? Well, we've just discussed God's perfect goodness of character as we are informed by Scripture, how he can never do any evil. So, how does he deal with evil? Does he ignore it? Is he helpless to do anything about it? Or is he somehow frustrated by its effects? (laughs) No, of course not. God is entirely the master of evil to the extent that he turns its effects to good. Now, if that's not the most comprehensive of defeats, then I don't know what else might, what might be. And there is an important passage in Genesis 50 that illustrates this ability of God. Now, I think most of us will know the story of Joseph and how he was sold into slavery by his brothers because of jealousy. And many, many years later, they come before him unknowingly. They don't know who he is. And by this time, he is a very powerful an influential man. And he reveals himself as the brother they cast aside. (laughs) Can you imagine the scene? (laughs) 
naturally they are more than a little afraid. But this is what he says. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. This text clearly shows that it is men who are responsible for evil acts. You meant it for evil, indicating Joseph's brothers. However, the Lord plays the long game. God knew that although a great injustice and work of evil was done on the day that Joseph was sold, the eventual outcome would be good for him and his brothers and most of all for God. He sees the end from the beginning. With his sovereign power and omnipotence, evil has no chance against him since he will always use its temporary effects ultimately for his glory and our good. So I believe that we now have an answer to our dilemma about what to do about the tension between evil and always being thankful. While we cannot obviously thank the Lord for evil things, there are a lot of things we can thank him for that relate directly to that situation. And in fact, the things that we can thank him for are true in any situation. Firstly, we can thank him that he is in control. God is never asleep at the wheel or off having a burger with his mates as we play by ourselves in the swimming pool. God is always intimately involved in all of his creation. He sees and he knows everything about it. He has a plan for each part and although his creatures, and that includes us by the way, may exercise the free will that God has given them in order to make silly choices, those choices will never prevent him from achieving his good goals. And I do have to add here that making silly choices deliberately to test God would certainly cause Monique to think you were dumb, bro. So, when the storm clouds are swirling around our knees, we can say, Thank you, Heavenly Father, that this storm is under your sovereign control. And because Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I can have the confidence that no matter how wet or muddy I get, or even if lightning strikes me, your hand will prevail, and the outcome will be the very best thing for your glory and my good. And I think that's quite a bit better than squawking and diving for cover in tears. Secondly, we can thank him for his ear. Hebrews 4.16 says that we ought to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The consequence of sin, before we are saved, is separation from God and ultimately eternal death. And as we've already discussed, God's holiness will not allow him to entertain any contact with evil or sin, and so the sinner is forever cut off from God's hearing. Before salvation, we can petition him as loudly and frequently as we like. Hey, hey, over here, God! We can do what we like. And it can be for the most worthy of causes. And yet he will not hear us because we're fouled by sin. Yet covered by Jesus' blood, we can march boldly as you like, right into the very throne room of God, into his presence. And he will lovingly receive us and hear us 
and he will act. Maybe not always as quickly as we might like or in the way we might hope for, but we can be certain that ultimately the Lord's decision will always be seen to be the right one. And this access and his ear is an indescribable privilege that we ought never to take for granted. And so one thing we can do when faced with an evil situation is to say, Lord, I'm in a bad place right now, but thank you that I can cry out to you and you will hear me. Thirdly, we can thank him for his guiding hand. This is a hard one for sure because often God's guidance means some form of correction and no one enjoys correction. And there are two main ways that we read in Scripture of the Lord doing this. Pruning and rebuking. And we can read about the first in John 15. I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And a good reference to rebuking is from Hebrews 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now in case you don't know what the word scourge means, it's a kind of a whip. So you're getting a good whipping. (laughs) So what's the difference between pruning and rebuking? Let me try to illustrate. Many, many years ago when I was about that high, I was a member of a thing called the Young Farmers Club. And we do all manner of things there, but the principal goal seemed to be to have as many badges as possible. If your shirt was pulled down by badges, that was very good. There was a lot of kudos in the playing field. If you didn't have any badges, well, you were always the last to be selected by the captain of the football team that didn't own the ball. To get the badges, you had to get the certificates. And to get the certificates, you had to do the tasks. And one certificate... I remember getting was for rose pruning. Hmm. It's probably a bit surprising to hear, but I can prune a mean rose, although my favourite weapon for doing so these days is a roundup. <laughs> now, there are two things that you're aiming to achieve when you're pruning a rose. You want to encourage growth. But it also, must also be growth in the right places. You want to achieve a balanced and pleasing shape to the bush. And to get to the right shape, well, you start by cutting all the stuff off that you don't want. But you don't just do this willy-nilly. You have to look for a bud, for the potential of growth that points in the right direction. And you cut away the stem just above that. But it also has to be in the right place in the bush because you're looking to the future, what that bud will become and what the branch will grow into. And you also have to do this work at the right time because... If you don't, well, the bush won't be ready to grow and you'll just kill it by cutting all these bits off. However, if your timing is right, it's quite incredible how much you can savage a bush and providing that that savagery has been tempered by science, you will find luxuriant growth there in a month or two and a bush of the right shape, covered in blossoms. Fortunately for us, the Lord is a master of shaping and timing. 
Now this text about vines and pruning obviously isn't talking about roses, it's talking about grapes. But the principle is the same. And it's a great illustration of the work that God continuously does in our lives. And he may prune us by many methods. He might close or open doors to opportunities. He might move us into a completely different space, maybe bring new people into our lives to influence us. The possibilities for him are endless. But his aim is to reshape us and to help us grow to be more like Jesus. But sometimes we just won't do what we should. We won't go through that door or deliberately go through another door instead and that's when we need a spiritual smack on the backside. We need rebuke. Although pruning will include cutting, it is a gentler process than rebuke. One is a persistent pressure, a directing. The other is a good old poke in the eye. It hurts, and it needs to, because otherwise we will just carry on doing what we ought not to. When God does stick his finger in our eye, there is something very important to remember. Although there is pain, and sometimes it's a very severe pain, we can be quite sure, though, that the Lord does have our best interests in mind, and that the pain is in fact a proof The text that I read just now from Hebrews 12 goes on like this. If you enjoy chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The pain that we experience under God's correction is not pain for pain's sake, It isn't a vengeful act on his part that he's made because we've sinned against him. No, Jesus has taken that pain for us. God's aim is increasing righteousness in us. And although we probably won't see its birth at the time of administration, it is always clear later as we look back. And as I've said, we should also take heart from the fact that the application of the pain is a proof that we are part of God's family. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? God is our father. And we can also be sure that just like pruning, it is part of a planned process with a definite objective. Philippians 1.6 gives us this very well-known promise. He who has begun a good work in you might complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's the right word? Will. He will complete it. The Lord knows what he wants to achieve in our lives through the process of sanctification. And he is completely dedicated to seeing it through. He won't give up. He won't ever lose interest and go off and play with the kids down the street instead. It will be finished properly. And that's very reassuring when you stop to think about how things might go if it were just down to our own efforts. 
Well, it's one thing to hear or read about these things, but we probably don't want to think too much exactly about how God will complete his work. Perhaps we think that hopefully it will be by some mysterious and painless work of the Holy Spirit, but A, doesn't hurt, and B, doesn't need any effort from us. Nope, neither of those. For A, as we've just discussed, the Lord's work in us often hurts because we are stubborn and sinful. And as for B, well, there are a lot of scriptures that confirm the process of becoming more and more like Jesus is a mutual effort between us and God. Our life's experience of a relationship with God will definitely include pain and struggle. And it seems to me that it ought to be because it is a witness to those around us of the truth of our relationship with God. As we look through these difficulties though, looking to the end and not the moment may seem to be a chore at times or even an impossibility when our experiences are particularly painful. But it is the end that is important and not in any small measure as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This can be a really difficult passage to stomach because it appears to trivialise even the most horrible thing that has happened to us. It looks like that. But I don't believe that that is true. I think that Paul really was struggling to find the words to explain how small the troubles that we have in life are in comparison to the reward that awaits us in heaven. There are perhaps some of us here who might find it offensive that he talks about mortal life as a light affliction because of the pain that they have experienced in their lives. Yet offense is very far from Paul's mind. His problem is the means of expressing such an enormous difference that fundamentally is unexplainable. But he has done his best with the words he has. His interest is not to tear down or to mock us, but to build us up and energize us when things are at their very darkest. When we get to heaven, we will understand at last exactly what he meant and surely will forgive him for suggesting that our suffering was inconsequential. Even here now, as we think through this, with the thought of Paul's intention in mind, we should be able to get some inkling of the worth of digging in today, although there is mud in your eye and blood in your hand, because there will be great joy and fulfilment in the end. With that insight, what can we do but direct our thanks to the one who offers us such an enormous gift and who has also paid a very great price to offer it to us? At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you three questions. Do you really believe that God is in control of everything? Do you trust God to look after you? If you do believe these things, what difference does it make to the way that you live your life? 
if I have done my job properly today, then you will know the answers to these questions. Yes, God is in control, no matter how custody everything looks. Yes, he is looking after his children, those who believe in Christ, every moment of every day. It might be a little bit more difficult, though, for us to answer the third question. How ought we to respond to these gifts? Well, hopefully, <laughs> that's obvious too, because today's passage is rather direct, it isn't, isn't it? Having recognized the many, many gifts given to us by our Heavenly Father, life and the necessities of life, health and wealth and far above all salvation, it seems that the very least that we can do is to give thanks always. And remember that means in all ways as well. For all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, where can we start to thank you for what you have done for us? What are the words that we could use? Lord, we recognize that your gift of salvation to us and your provision and care for us in daily life are so vast and so precious that we cannot ever give appropriate praise. Lord, you, you know I'm struggling for the words. Thank you, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts. We thank you. And I hope that we will thank you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.